better. There we go. Thank you for being here tonight. What a great crowd on this Tuesday night. Pastor and I were speaking today about the good crowds each night, and I'm so grateful uh, that you're here and uh, willing to hear the Word of God. I was telling Pastor, you're an easy crowd to preach to, and I can always tell folks that uh, come to church for the reason to hear the Word of God, and I believe you're that kind of crowd, and it's just been a delight uh, to be with you and appreciate uh, what God is doing in our hearts. Let's go to James chapter 4 tonight, the book of James chapter number 4. I'm sure these verses that we'll read as our text will be familiar to many. Yet I was convicted some time back that it's easy to sort of avoid the familiar verses. I find myself sometimes when I read my devotions, I'll come to a verse that I'm familiar with and I'll kind of just skip over it. I'll read it but not really think about it because I'm thinking I already know that. And yet the reason verses are familiar is because of the great truth they contain. And uh, we dare not overlook uh, the, the obvious in Scripture. James chapter 4, look at verse 13. Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year, buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. I mentioned in a previous message that as a youngster, I took care of a cemetery. And as a result of that, I spent a number of hours in that cemetery mowing the grass and, and uh, digging graves and things of that nature. I should tell you, we did not have riding lawnmowers in those days. Uh, we did not have self-propelled lawnmowers in those days. We did not have lawnmowers with motors on them in those days. Uh, you cut the grass, and the faster you walk, the faster the blades went around, and that's how you cut the grass. But uh, those were some primitive days in that cemetery, and uh, cutting grass, and watering flowers, and digging graves, and caring for those things. And as you do that, as you spend some time in a cemetery, even if you just walk through, or you're visiting a loved one's grave, you notice that the grave stones, or the grave markers, they have information on them, and uh, there are some things etched in the stone uh, that tell us something about who is buried there. There is one engraving on a tombstone that's the most important of all. Now, there are many things on that tombstone, but there's one mark on the tombstone that is the most important. It's not the name of the person. Now, your name's important. Your name is your identity. You're given a name when you're born, and you carry that name throughout your life. And the Bible says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Solomon said a good name is better than a precious ointment. It's, it's very important that we build a good name, a, a good reputation. And it takes a whole lifetime to build a good name, about five minutes to ruin it. And so it's important to have a good name. But if I were named Bill or Bob or Jerry, my, I don't think my life would have been any different. It would have been the same. My name doesn't really make the difference in my life. Also on that gravestone is the date of your birth. 
Now, your birthday is a big day. Your birthday is an important day. It's an exciting day as you, as you grow up and you reach certain milestones of your life. And we celebrate a birthday. And your birthday is important. But it's not the most important thing about you. Also on that tombstone is the date of your death. Now, that's a significant day, particularly for those that are left behind after you who mourn that you've passed and, and they grieve for, for a season of time because they miss you and so on. But the most important thing about us is not the day that we die. On that gravestone, there may be a verse of scripture, and certainly that would be important anytime, anywhere. There may be an epitaph, something that would describe your life in some way. But all of those engravings that are placed there in that stone are not the most important thing about us. The most important mark on a tombstone, it's not very big. In fact, it probably takes the engraver just a moment to place it into that stone. But it's the most important thing on that tombstone. It's the little dash that separates the date of your birth from the date of your death. Because that little dash represents your whole life. Now tonight, we are living somewhere in the midst of that dash. For some, they may be at the very beginning of the dash. For others, we may be at the very end of our dash. By the way, none of us know where we are in that dash. Got a call last week at camp. One of our alumni texted me, called me, and his son, 17 years old, Nathan, born while he was a student there at West Coast. He and his wife came. He had been a state trooper, and God got a hold of his heart. They moved to Lancaster, came to college, and, and while they were there, Nathan was born 17 years ago. Nathan was at camp last week in Oklahoma. One day, just sitting there, had a heart attack. No previous history of heart problems, no history of any problems physically. They flight lifted him to Dallas where he was pronounced dead. No one would have thought that Nathan was at the end of his dash at 17. We all understand tonight that we don't know in what area of the dash we're in, but right now we are somewhere in that dash, and the question begs, what are we doing with our dash? We only get one. We don't get to redo life. Life is not a video game. You press a button and start over. What are we doing with the dash of time that God has given us? Let's think about a couple very important aspects of this dash we call life or time on earth. First, we find that it is a divine dash. Our life is a gift from God. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And life is one of the most precious gifts that God ever gives to us. And it is God that gives life. The Bible tells us in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 13 that Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went in unto her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. 
It's God that gives conception. Children are an heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is his reward. In other words, God makes it clear throughout Scripture that it is he that gives life. We tend to think that we're in control of our life. We tend to think that, hey, it's my life. I'll run it the way I want to run it. I'll live it the way I want to live it. Nobody can tell me what to do. You know, it's my life. But is it really? Our life is given to us by God. We are simply stewarding this thing we call time or life. Hannah, in her prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2, she said, There's none holy as the Lord, for there's none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy go out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him are actions weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. They that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread. And they that were hungry ceased. For the barren hath borne seven. And she that hath many children is waxed feeble. For the Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up again. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar out of the dunghill to set them among princes that they may inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the worlds upon them. The adversaries of the Lord should be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them until they be destroyed. For by strength shall no man prevail. You see, we tend to think that my life is mine and I can live it the way I want to and I don't have to listen to God if I don't care to and I can go against God's plan for my life. But we are not really in control. Our life is a gift from God. All nations before him, Isaiah 40 says, are as nothing. They are less than nothing in vanity. The nations before God are as a drop of a bucket. They're counted as the small dust of the balance. If God says that all the nations are like a drop in a bucket, if all the nations are like the dust on a balance scale, if that's what God views the nations as, how does he view us? Well, later in Isaiah 40, he said, uh, He sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are grasshoppers. You see, we're not as big, we're not as powerful as we might think we are. Our life is controlled by God. Our life is in the hand of God. Isaiah said in chapter 40, verse 6, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. We have a divine dash. Our life is a gift from God. We are merely stewarding this thing we call time until we step into eternity forever. It's a divine dash. But notice, secondly, it is a distinguished dash. There are no two people alike. Everyone is uniquely created. Uh, There are people who are born twins and and I've had the privilege of knowing some twins in my life, and, and uh, I've known twins that I could not tell the difference. I could not tell them apart. We've had students at the college who are twins, and I don't know which one's which. They give me these little hints, and, and uh, you know, she combs her hair this way, and she combs it this way, and I'm thinking, yeah, but they comb it different every day. I mean, how am I supposed to remember that? 
There are people that obviously look very much alike. But, you know, I've discovered that even with those twins who look very much alike, their personalities are different. They, they have different abilities and gifts and talents and, and, and interests. And so we are all very unique. Why? Because God created us uniquely. He created a distinct creation when he made us. And God chiefly made us in order that we might bring glory to God. That's our chief purpose in life. The reason I'm drawing breath tonight is so that I can bring glory to God. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, Thou art worthy to receive glory, honor, power, and blessing. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. You and I are on planet earth tonight because we're to bring God pleasure. We're to be to the praise of his glory. Now, whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we're to do all to the glory of God. But within that general purpose that God has given all of us, he has created a specific plan just for you and I. I marvel when I read Jeremiah chapter 1, and, and God tells the prophet Jeremiah, when you were in your mother's belly, I knew you. And I had already ordained you to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. Uh, we, 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 we think of people in the Bible like John the Baptist, who even in the womb, God already had outlined the plan for his life to be that forerunner of the Messiah. Uh, there are others in Scripture that we see God's hand upon them even before they were born. And you know that's true of all of us. In Psalm 139, the psalmist said, I'll praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works. How precious are thy thoughts unto me. For I uh, know, uh, uh, God said, when you were in your mother's belly, I formed you. All your members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. God had everything about us written in a book before we ever came out into this life in birth. He uniquely designed us. Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not evil, to bring you to an expected end. We complain about what we look like. We complain about, you know, I'm too short or I'm, we complain because I, I don't have talent to sing or I, we complain because I, I didn't have this opportunity or that opportunity. Why don't we just accept the fact that God made us exactly the way he wanted us to be? Why don't we accept our gender? Why, why don't we accept the fact that we have a certain personality? Why don't we accept the fact that we have certain talents and other people have other talents and God puts them all together in a local church and in a family in order to accomplish his purposes? We get so discontent. We, we want something different. We, 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 we desire, we covet, we envy the, the, the abilities or the opportunities of other people. And we live our whole life discontented with the way God made us. Reminds me of the man that was stranded on an island. Maybe you heard about this fellow. He was stranded on an island for 12 years. And uh, he tried to be rescued. I mean, every time a plane would fly over, he'd run out on the beach and wave his arms, but nobody ever saw him. He'd hear a plane coming. He'd go out and he'd light a fire and try to send some smoke up into the air so somebody would see him, but nobody ever discovered him. For 12 years, he was stuck on that island. Well, one day he heard a plane, and so he ran out on the beach, and he threw his arms in the air, and he began to yell. And sure enough, the pilots saw him. And he wired back to the, uh, to the airport and told them there was a guy on this island, and so they sent a helicopter out to pick him up. Well, he was ecstatic. 
I mean, finally, after 12 years, he was being rescued. And the chopper landed, and the guy ran out there. He gave that pilot a big bear hug. He was so thankful that he had come to get him. And, and the pilot, he said, uh, no problem. He said, uh, why don't you get your stuff, get the others, and let's get you all out of here. Phyllis said, others? There are no others. I'm the only one here. I've been over every square inch of this island. I'm the only person on this island. The pilot said, really? Well, when I was landing, I noticed there were three huts. If you're the only person here, why are there three huts? The fellow said, well, the first one, that's my house. That's where I live. Okay, what's the second one? He said, well, that's my church. That's where I go to church. Pilot was very impressed. He said, what's the third one? He said, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> what a picture of discontentment, right? If we were the only person in the church, we'd want to leave it, you know. Find something better, something more interesting, something that would appeal to us. That's kind of the way we are. And we're, we're so discontent with our life. And God says uh, uh, that we're to beware of covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. I have said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. God designed Moses to be the leader of the nation of Israel at a very critical time in their history. But when God called Moses to lead, Moses said, Lord, I, I can't do that. I, 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 I can't. I, I, I stutter. <laughs> I, I, I don't speak well. God said, who has made man's mouth? Have not I the Lord? Moses, that's a really small problem for me. You need to just surrender that to me. I think of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth at five years of age. Uh, a nurse picked him up to run from a battle and she fell. And Mephibosheth, from that point on, was lame on both of his feet. A tragic story. And yet by the time we get to the end of Mephibosheth's life, he's sitting at the king's table. God took a lame man, put him all the way at the king's table. I think of so many in the Bible that, that, that seem to have a misfortune or they seem to have a difficulty in their life. And yet God, in his miraculous way, turns the tables and turns things around for his glory if we allow him to. But if we sink into bitterness and discontentment and anger and get frustrated with God, we're going to miss out on this blessing. It's a divine dash. It's a distinguished dash. But notice, thirdly, it is a determined dash. In Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 2, Solomon said, a time to be born and a time to die. A time to be born. So we all have a birthday. Everybody in here could tell me when their birthday is, right? Young lady here on the front row, what's, when's your birthday? November 8th. When is yours, sir? March 24th. And you, sir? November 6th. If I went around the room, everybody could tell me your birthday, right? Did you know we all have a death day? Now we don't know when it is. But we have a death day. Because there's a time to be born. The time to die. See, we've got to understand something. We, we don't die because we get old. We don't die because we get sick. We don't die because we meet an unfortunate accident. It's appointed unto men once to die. 
Job said, is there not an appointed time to man upon the earth? Are not his days as the days of an hireling? The eye that has seen me shall see me no more. Thine eyes are upon me, and I am not. Thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. Our, our life is like someone who gets hired for a job. We hire somebody to come and maybe fix something at the church. And the fellow says, I think it'll take about 10 hours. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll hire you for that. Uh, we'll pay you this much money. And so he comes. He's not on the staff. He's not even a part of the church. He's not even a member. But, but he comes as a hireling. He comes as a, as a, as a uh, self-employed uh, handyman or something. He comes. He does his job. And he leaves. God says that's the way your life is. You, you, you have a given time on this earth, a time to be born, a time to die, a determined dash. We spend our years, the psalmist said in chapter 90 and verse 8, as a tale that is told. I like to read biographies. I don't get to read as many as I'd like sometimes. My wife reads more than I do uh, of biographies, but... Uh, we've noticed something as we've read various biographies. They all have a last chapter. The person dies. The story ends. We spend our years as a tale that is told. When we started West Coast Baptist College, we decided after the first year that we should put together a musical team that could travel and in the summertime and represent the college in various churches. All colleges do that. We wanted to be like all colleges, I guess. And so we said, we need a, we need a team that will go out and, and uh, let folks know about the college and, and be a blessing in churches. And so I thought, well, you know, do we have enough talent to do that? We started with 43 students at West Coast, and the talent pool was a little shallow, you know. And, and so we had some tryouts, and, and uh, these kids tried out. And, and there were six girls that we selected. And uh, they were quite talented, actually. They, they sounded really good together. They had a wonderful blend. They were all good friends. And, and of course, in a school of 43, you're friends with everybody. And, and uh, so they were good friends. Three of them played the piano. Two of them played the flute. They were multi-talented in a number of ways. And they put together a repertoire of music. And, and the secretaries, they booked them in a different church every night for seven weeks. We got it all set up. And then Pastor Chapel said, now, Gatch, you're going to travel with them. I said, do what? He said, you're going to travel with him. You're going to do the preaching. I said, you're kidding. Me? In a van? With seven girls? Six girls? Seven weeks? Whoa. You know, we started that tour. All six of those girls were extroverts. Now, I'm an introvert by nature. I don't have to talk to be happy. In fact, if you see me, if you see me sitting up here by myself, don't don't feel sorry for me. I'm having the time of my life. I I, I, I had throat surgery several years ago, and and I wasn't allowed to speak, not even a whisper, for three weeks. It was the best three weeks of my life. But but I, I'm introverted by nature. But these girls were all extroverted. Now, the female gender talks more than the male gender. I, I, I'm not being unkind or anything like that. These are facts, okay? Uh, in fact, they tell us that the average female says 25,000 words a day. 25,000. The average male says 10,000 words a day. Now, I, I know what you ladies are thinking. That's because you guys don't listen. We have to tell you twice. I, I get that. I, I got that. 
but but women tend to be more talkative than 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 men. But these girls were experts. I mean, they were really out there. And I mean, from the time I'd pick them up in the morning all day long, they were just constant conversation. And I'm driving and I'm learning a lot, you know. And uh, now, when you travel with a group like that for several weeks in a van, you got to have some rules. I mean, you got to be on time. We got to get to the next church. We can't be late. So I'd give them a time. We got to be here, you know, at six thirty tomorrow morning, ready to go. And I'd give them a time. If they were late, we find them. You know, fifty cents or whatever. We would have a fine so that they they would learn. You know, you, you can't trash the van. You got to keep your spot clean. Don't be messing up the van. And and so we had these rules, and we were doing fine. And about three weeks into that trip, one day we had a very early departure, five a.m. at the church. They had to be there, ready to go, and packed up. And uh, we got there, and the girls did a great job, got everything in the van. We were ready to go. We got in, had a word of prayer, pulled out of the parking lot, and one of the girls said, I have a new rule we need to vote on. I said, what is it? She said, well, I've noticed that early in the morning, especially when we have these early morning things, she said, we, we tend to be a little grouchy. We tend to complain. We're in a bad mood. And. You know, we didn't get enough sleep or we didn't get to eat breakfast or, you know, whatever. And she said, we, we tend to complain and we ought not to do that. We're, 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 we're out here. We're privileged to travel and represent the, the Lord and the college. And, and you know, we're getting paid to do this and, and we ought not to be complaining. We, we ought to be excited about what God's given us. So she said, I make a rule that if somebody in the van is talking, and someone else in the van doesn't like what's being said, they can say, the end. And the person has to stop talking or pay a dollar. I like this rule. (laughs) I love this rule. I wish this was a rule for all of society. Well, we talked about it. You know, we discussed the rule and, and the ramifications. And, and, and actually, I thought, you know, this is a pretty good rule. I mean, I can be grouchy, too. I can come in in the morning, be complaining or grouchy and not really intend to be discouraging. But I, I can tend to be that way. And if I'm saying something in the van that the girls don't appreciate, they should be able to call me on it just like I would them. And so I, I, I like this rule. So we discussed it like that. We had a vote. We voted 7-0 to pass the rule. So now... If anybody was talking in the van and someone else didn't like what was being said, they could say the end. Person had to stop or pay a dollar. So we went down the road. We probably traveled an hour or two. The girls were talking. And one of the girls, her name was Cassie. Cassie was a sweet girl, fine Christian girl, uh, on the mission field today in Honduras with her husband. Her daughter just graduated from West Coast this year. Great family. Cassie was a good girl, loved to talk. But but Cassie was, well, have you ever had somebody tell you a joke and it would have been funny if they hadn't told it? That was Cassie. Her speech was dull. It was boring. She had no life, no vividness to her speech. And she started talking, droning on about something. And I looked in the mirror and all the girls kind of rolled their eyes like, here goes Cassie again. And then I caught the eye of the girl who made the rule. And she had a little twinkle in her eye, and I thought, oh, no. And she let Cassie go for about three or four minutes, and all of a sudden she said, the end. 
And Cassie had to quit talking. It was great. It was awesome. For the rest of the summer, every time Cassie opened her mouth, she'd say, I remember the time, the end. <laughs> and Cassie would slink down her seat and cry. It was wonderful. It was awesome. You know, I see all six of those girls quite often. They're all serving the Lord today. In fact, the girl that made the rules is my daughter-in-law. But anyway, that's another story. But, but I see those girls a lot. And, and when we talk about the past and some things from college, that story always comes up. And we laugh. But you know, one of these days, you and I are going to be going through our life. And God's going to say, the end. But, but, but God, I... I'm not saved yet. The end. But, but, but God, I, I, I'm a little behind on my Bible reading. The end. But, but God, I, I, I was going to witness to my neighbors. The end. Your story has an ending. Our dash is a determined dash. But I want you to see finally tonight, it's a diminishing dash. I don't know how many days you have to live or I. But I know this, we have one less than we had last night. Regardless of our age, our life is diminishing. We are closer to eternity tonight than we were last night. We're not adding on time somehow. We're not earning bonus minutes. It's a diminishing dash. The Bible here in our text describes it as a vapor. Like a breath on a cold morning that is seen for a moment and quickly vanishes. Or the smoke from a fire or steam from a kettle. It's there for a moment but then dissipates into the air. And God says, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. In the book of Acts, there was a man by the name of Felix, and Felix heard Paul preach. And Paul preached of judgment and righteousness. And, and uh, Felix, the Bible says, trembled as he heard Paul preach. He was under so much conviction that physically he, he had a reaction physically and trembled before Paul. But he said, Paul, uh, go thy way. When I have a more convenient season, I'll call for thee. Felix, under the conviction of the Spirit of God, knowing he needed Christ as Savior, tells Paul, leave me for now. Go your way. I'll, I'll, I'll call you when I'm ready to make this decision. And the interesting thing is you never see Felix's name again on the pages of Scripture. He's never mentioned Apparently, that convenient season never came. So many times we plan to get right with God or we plan to get saved at 11 o'clock only to know that we die at 1045. We have a diminishing dash. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Some years ago, I was holding a revival in southern Wisconsin. Small town, small church. Sunday evening, as I went in for the service, the pastor and I had agreed to meet in his office before the service. And 
I walked in and he had been going through his mail Sunday afternoon. And he slid a letter across the desk to me and he said, read that. And so I quickly read it. It was not a long letter, but it was from two girls who were students at a Christian college about 1,500 miles away. The letter read something like this. Dear Pastor, we are students at Bible College and you don't know us and we don't know you. We've never met. But our grandparents live near your church. We think about 20 miles from your church. Not exactly sure. They live out on a a lake and um, they're not saved. And over the years, we've tried to witness to them. We've given them tracts. We've talked to them about the Lord, but they've just not shown interest. And they're getting up in years, and we're burdened for them. We've been praying for them here at college and been sending them letters and witnessing to them, making phone calls to them. But our grandpa particularly is very ill. And they say he doesn't have long to live. Would you please consider going by and seeing them? And witnessing to them, they had the address there. I said, Pastor, let's go. He said, well, let's go tomorrow morning. He said, I'm not sure I can find this place. I'm familiar a little bit with the area. It's kind of a private area around this lake. He said, it's very poorly marked. They don't really have street signs out there. But he said, "I, I think I know approximately where it is. Well, the next morning we got in the car and we drove. It was about 20 miles out to this kind of a private area. And he was right. It was very wooded and around this lake and the roads kind of went in circles and, and uh, didn't, didn't usually last very long, kind of dead ends and cul-de-sacs. And, and uh, there were no numbers on the houses. And we, we stopped a couple of times and asked. And we finally located a house that we were pretty sure was the right house. We pulled in a small driveway there that faced the two-car garage. And there was a back door there. And we went up to that door and the pastor went to knock on the door. And when he did, it opened. He almost fell inside. The lady... She jumped back, surprised as well, and she said, oh, I I thought you were my neighbor. She said, she's coming by to pick me up. I need to go to the dentist. And I thought you were my neighbor. I'm so sorry. Well, the pastor, he said, no, no, I'm I'm pastor. He introduced himself, and I have our evangelist here, and and, uh, are you Mrs. Slocum? She said, I sure am. She said, well, he said, "We, we got a letter from your granddaughters. Her face lit up, and they wanted us to come by and say hello to you and chat with you for a minute. She said, oh, that's so kind. She said, I wish I had time. I, I've got to go to the dentist. I, 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 I've got to make this appointment that my neighbor will be here any minute. The pastor said, well, that's fine. We can come back tomorrow if that worked better. She said, that'd be great. I'll be here all day. Well, the neighbor still hadn't shown up, and the pastor said, listen, I understand that um, your husband is not well. Uh, would you mind, while we're waiting for your neighbor, to, if we just stepped inside and had a word of prayer with you folks? She got a very somber look in her face, and she said, uh, Pastor, my husband's not well. Um, I don't know that it would do any good to pray. Um, I have him in a hospital bed in the back bedroom. He's very ill. He um, is very confused and The cancer has really taken a toll on his body and mind. And some days he doesn't even know who I am. And she said, I, and the pastor, well, more reason to pray. Do you mind? She said, okay. We followed her down a hallway to this back bedroom. And I followed the two of them in. And 
Here was this man, very frail. I doubt that he weighed 100 pounds. Lying on that bed, just staring straight at us. Just skin and bones. And the first thing I noticed was his hands and his feet were tied to the sides of the bed. The pastor tried to communicate with him, but he he showed absolutely nothing except he looked very frightened. And the lady said, uh, I think he thinks you're doctors. His doctor wears a tie and you guys have ties on. He thinks you're doctors. And the pastor said, oh, no, sir, we're not doctors. I'm a pastor. And and yet the man just just stared like he was hearing, not hearing. You, You weren't sure. I think the lady noticed that I was. Noticing his hands being tied, and she said, "You're, you're probably wondering why I've tied it, why I've tied him in the bed." She said, "He has these sores, and he he itches them, he scratches them, they break open, they bleed. I have to tie his his hands and his feet, or he'll he'll scratch them." We had a word of prayer. We left. The next morning, we went back, and Mrs. Slocum gladly let us in the home, and we went into the living room, sat down, began to speak with her. We brought the conversation around to the Lord and spiritual things. And she was sitting across from me in a rocking chair and the pastor was sitting to my right and I was sitting kind of across from Mrs. Slocum. And when we got onto the Bible and, and, and such, she said, oh, she said, my granddaughter sent me a Bible. Would you like to see it? I said, I'd love to see it. She got up and she walked in front of me over to a, 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 a dresser and she pulled open the top drawer and she took out a box, opened the box and pulled out a giant print Bible, a beautiful leather bound giant print Bible. She brought it over, put it in my lap. She said, isn't it beautiful? I said, it sure is. It's a beautiful Bible. And I was opening it and, and uh, on the front blank page, I didn't read it completely, but it said, dear grandpa and grandma, We're praying for you. We want to see you in heaven one day. We're asking God to save you. And she said, you know, I know it's a giant print Bible, but she said, my eyes are so bad, I can't even read it. And I said, well, ma'am, I'm sorry to hear that. I said, "Uh, would you mind if I read some of it to you? She said, oh, that'd be wonderful. Well, I got up out of my chair and I started over to where she was seated. I was going to kneel down beside her and, and, and show her where I was reading so that she would know I was reading the Bible. And as I walked, I turned to 1 John chapter 5. I wanted her to see that we can know that we have eternal life. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And his, this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. But these things are written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. That you have eternal life. And so I wanted to show her those verses. And I, I got to 1 John 5 and I knelt down. And when I looked at verses 11 through 13, they were highlighted in yellow. And I thought those granddaughters. And I said, oh, look here, Mrs. Slocum, the verses I was about to read to you are highlighted in yellow. Apparently your granddaughters highlighted these for you. She looked at that. And she said, whoa. Those must be important verses. I said, oh, they are. And I read them and I explained to her that she could know that she had eternal life. I said, Mrs. Slocum, wouldn't you like to know that when your life ends, you'll be in heaven? She said, well, of course. I said, well, there's just a few things we have to understand. And I was turning back to Romans chapter 3. I was going to show her how that we're all sinners, right? Romans 3, 10 
Uh, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one, none that understandeth, they're all gone out of the way. Romans 3.23, for all of sin, come short of the glory of God. I got there, highlighted in yellow. I read those verses. I explained how we're all sinners. I said, Mrs. Slocum, do you believe you're a sinner? Oh, yes. I said, well, Mrs. Slocum, there's a problem with that, and that is that there's a wage to that sin. I turned to Romans 6.23, and it was highlighted in yellow. The wages of sin is death. I explained that's not just physical death. That's a spiritual death, a separation from God for eternity in a place called hell. And I asked her, do you believe that without, as a sinner, that you deserve to go to hell? She said, I sure do. I said, well, ma'am, the rest of the verse goes on, though, to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I turn to Romans 5.8. God commendeth his love toward us, that while we we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I went to John 3.16, John 1.12, Ephesians 2.8.9. They were all highlighted in yellow. I explained how Christ took our place on the cross. Asked her if she understood that. She said she did. I said, then God has provided this gift of eternal life, and we have to receive it. I went to Romans 10.9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All highlighted in yellow. I explained that to her. I said, Mrs. Slocum, would you like to ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior today? She did something that only old people can do. She put her hands on her hips like this. and She kind of straightened up and she said, well, I ain't getting any younger. I need to do this. And before I could move, she slipped to her knees and started praying and asking the Lord to save her. It was wonderful. Well, we talked to her for a little bit after, and the pastor, he said, you know, Mrs. Slocum, as you were listening to Brother Gatchin praying, I got to thinking, we have a family in our church that lives out this way. I don't know exactly how close, but they live out this way. And the wife is a nurse. And he said, I just wondered. He said, our church would love to meet you. They would love to hear how you got saved. And and if I had that family come by and get you this Sunday morning, would you come to our church and tell our folks that you got saved? He said, I think the lady would be glad to stay with your husband while you were at church. If you'd like to come with the husband and the five children. They have a big van. He said, She said, Pastor, if you could do that, I would love to come to your church. Well, he said, I'm going to ask them tonight. And he said, I've got some materials back at the church that I think I can make a little bigger on our copy machine for you to read. And I'd like to bring those by as well. And maybe we could come back on Friday. She said, that would be wonderful. We got up to leave and the pastor said, would you mind if we went and prayed with your husband again? She said, well, now, Pastor, you know, he said, "I, I know. We'll just have prayer. We followed her down the hallway to the same room. There was the same man lying there just staring straight ahead. Pastor tried to make a little conversation. He showed nothing, didn't even blink. We prayed and we left. Pastor made all those arrangements. The family was thrilled to do it. And so Friday we came back with the news and the arrangements, the schedule and all the rest and the papers that Pastor had for her. And uh, he's explaining all this, what time she'd get picked up and when she'd be back and the wife would stay with her husband. And He's explaining all this and they're talking. I'm just sitting there listening. 
And the Holy Spirit said. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak in an audible voice. I've never heard an audible voice from the Holy Spirit, but you know how he speaks to your heart. And the Holy Spirit said to me, go talk to her husband. I said, well, Lord, I can't. I can't right now. I mean, I'm, we're in the middle of a conversation. I'm, I'm a guest here. I can't just walk up and wander through the house. The Lord said, go talk to her husband. I said, well, Lord, I don't think it would do any good. I mean, we've been there twice, and he doesn't understand. He doesn't comprehend. It wouldn't do any The Lord said, go talk to him. I interrupted the conversation. I said, Ms. Slocum, do you mind while you're talking to the pastor if I slip back and talk to your husband for a minute? She said, well, you know, I said, I know. Could I borrow your Bible? She said, it's in the drawer over there. I went over, pulled open the drawer, took out the box, took the cover off, took the giant print Bible, and I made my way down the hallway to that room. There was Mr. Slocum. Same condition as the days before. I said, hi, Mr. Slocum. I was here the other day. The pastor of the Baptist church. Do you remember me? Nothing. Just stared. I said, uh, how are you feeling today? Any pain? Nothing. Just stared. I said, uh, Mr. Slocum, it's uh, it's snowing outside. It was February, and big snowflakes were floating past his bedroom window. When I said that, he turned his head. Ugh. I thought, well, he understood that. I said, Mr. Slocum, this is a Bible, God's Word. Your granddaughters in college actually sent this to you and your wife. Do you understand this is the Bible? Ugh. I said, Mr. Slocum, could I read you some verses on the Bible? Ugh. I turned to 1 John 5. I read verses 11 to 13. I explained how we can know that we have eternal life. I said, Mr. Slocum, wouldn't it be wonderful if when your life is over, you could be in heaven? Ugh. I said, well, Mr. Slocum, there's just a few things we need to understand. And I went through sin in Romans 3. I asked that he was a sinner. I went to Romans 6.23. I explained death, hell. I said, Mr. Slocum, do you realize that in your condition right now, as a sinner, you're on your way to hell? I said, but Mr. Slocum, there's good news. Jesus has already died in your place. He's already paid your price for your sin. I read in Romans 5, 8, John 3, 16, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, John 1, 12. I said, you understand when Jesus died on that cross, he was dying for you, Mr. Slocum. I said, Mr. Slocum, all we have to do to go to heaven is to accept that gift of eternal life from Christ. Admitting that we're a sinner, that we can't save ourselves, but he can save us. I read in Romans 10, 9 and 10, Romans 10, 13. I said, Mr. Slocum, wouldn't you like to ask Jesus to be your Savior? I know you can't speak in words, but I could, I could form a prayer for you, and you could agree in your heart with that prayer. Would you like to ask Jesus to be your Savior? Bill. Bill. 
I said, but Mr. Slocum, th- th- this is the Bible. This is God's word. And you understand that you're a sinner. You're on your way to hell. And only Christ can save you. Wouldn't you like Christ to save you today? Bill. Bill. I said, but Mr. Slocum, you're not a well man. You're sick and you may not have long to live. Wouldn't you like to ask Christ to save you today? That man began to pull at those straps that were tying his arms. He began to kick at the sides of that bed. He began to cry out, No! 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 I never felt so helpless in my life. Here was a man rejecting the gospel. I have no idea why. He couldn't talk. And within 24 hours, his dash ended. And he went into eternity. Is that the moment you're waiting for to do business with God? In hopes that maybe in that final breath, you're going to get saved? In in that final hour, you're going to get things right? Friend, we are living in a vapor. We have but a short time to prepare to meet God. Life is our opportunity to prepare to meet God. And since we don't know how how long life is, it would behoove us to prepare tonight. Let's bow our heads for prayer.